It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you're very well on a Monday. Now, coming up on today's episode... As George Osborne's deputy at the Treasury throughout the coalition years, Danny Alexander was a co-architect of austerity. He then lost his seat in 2015 and went off to work for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. While he's back in his native Scotland for the COP26 talks, and I caught up with him to ask about everything from China to the coalition and are the Lib Dems ever going to come back? Because that's coming up as our big thing on today's episode. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachey. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Now, I wanted to start this. It feels like there's a couple of different things that we can pull together the threads on. And I suppose all of it is, the big question is, Boris Johnson, global statesman. How... Mm. uh, (laughs) An excellent noise there from Libby. Um, Because we've got, obviously, COP26, and there is even some debate as to whether or not, you know, a success at COP26 is even within his uh, gift or, uh, you know, within his grasp. But then we've also got this row with France and over fish and, you know, imminent war with France. And then you've got the sort of the broader question of Britain's place in the world and, uh, you know, relations with, um, you know, the rest of Europe, the rest of the world. Libby, uh, explain your noise. Well, it's just the most enraging political nonsense about the fishing, and for once it is actually Macron uh, who is at fault. These are small numbers of small boats which say they're entitled to licences. A lot of them apparently don't have the right logbook documentation to show they always fished there before. On top of that, scallop dredging is environmentally awful anyway. It screws up the seabed badly. And then we get this extraordinary Castex letter saying it's important to demonstrate to the EU that leaving the EU makes things worse for people. In other words, must make sure Britain sweats for having done it so we can frighten the Poles and the Hungarians into staying. This is a piece of so scummy politics, bang in the middle of an important COP meeting, that it takes your breath away. It really does. And I'm a Francophile. Wow. Scummy politics. Rachel, your take on it. Well, I have to say I'm a bit more even-handed about it. I think it's scummy politics on both sides. You know, Boris Johnson, he's supposed to be showing global leadership at the moment, but he seems to be picking fights left, right and centre. So I think the fishing thing, its the Brits are equally at fault to the French as far as I can work out. Um, and then meanwhile, you've got is that Northern right? is Ireland. That, is that right, Rachel? Haven't we just uh, done what we said we were going to do? That if you could prove that you've been fishing in those waters, you could have a licence. 
That's what we've but done. The prob- but the pro- isn't the problem that it's quite hard for some of these boats to prove they were fishing? And there was a French politician this morning suggesting, look, can't the, the authorities from both sides just sit down and agree a list of boats that should be allowed? Um, and the Brits won't even go there. So I think it just feels like we are picking fights too. And meanwhile, you've got Northern Ireland this morning, you know, a bus hijacked and set alight mm. in Northern Ireland. That's all really teetering on the brink with Lord Frost um, throwing his weight around, refusing to uh, abide by the agreement that he uh, drew up or, you know, trying to tear that up and start again. Uh, and if you want to show global leadership, you have to make friends and not make enemies mm. left, right and centre. But, but Rachel, do you, do you not feel that that Castex letter sort of saying it is important to demonstrate that leaving the EU makes things worse for people, that that is pure, pure politics totally. because they're that, afraid so of other countries was, moving out? That, that's just yeah, atrocious. No, that, yeah, I agree. And that's, that's incendiary on the other side. But I don't think... Boris Johnson and Lord Frost have been trying to build bridges. They've been trying to blow them up and for political gain too because they want to pander to their Tory uh, Brexiteers and make make sure that we've got, uh, you know, we're, that they're shoring up their position by picking a fight with everyone. But I, I suppose if, if, if Boris Johnson was behaving like Emmanuel Macron, Brit, <coughs> British Remainers would be going wild. Uh, and actually, aren't we just saying, well, these are the rules as we uh, laid down. This was the deal. Um, that's that's it. That's the that's the you know. And actually, unusually, I would say, Boris Johnson and um, uh, uh, Liz Truss and George Eustace last week are not escalating this in the way in the slightly jingoistic way that they might have done in the past. But that's precisely what we're not doing over the Northern Ireland Protocol. We're yeah. saying, um, actually, mm. we want to go back to the drawing board, rip this all up, start again. <laughs> oh, it was the agreement we signed. Oops, no, now we want to redraw it all. Um, so the the problem is it's on... It, I do think it's on both sides. I mean, both, you know, the, the COP mm. thing just reminds you how big the questions and the challenges are that... Um, the West faces, and and yet we can't work together. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, Libby? That, that, that we're sticking to our agreement when it comes to French fishing boats, but we aren't when it comes to the the rest of the deal that we signed and now don't like. Yes, it, it makes me terribly sad because my central thought here is that great tragedy is that Boris Johnson is not Rachel because somebody as even-handed and as sensible <laughs> as that would probably resolve this. You know, Rachel for Prime Minister you know, and, and then Boris can <laughs> no, come on surely no. and witch her away with us on a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe Rachel Sylvester for Prime Minister. That seems like right. Fine, we've sorted that. We've sorted that one out. Um, uh, no, I'm turning it down. <laughs> <laughs> as ever, as ever. That's the, the first. The first thing that should disqualify someone from becoming Prime Minister is, is the desire to do the job. Yeah, exactly. um, they should be, be immediately struck off. Uh, Libby, let's talk about your your column today. A completely different topic. Um, uh, but looking at uh, domestic violence, and actually in the wake of this, this, uh, this, um, the, the the murder of David Jackson. 
I should say it's not uh, it's not domestic violence in the wake of it is very specifically about this particular Jackson case because what we're getting now is some comparisons with uh, the Sally Challen case which is frankly different as chalk and cheese if you look at their histories but there's this sort of move saying oh well because she's a woman she must have been abused and bullied therefore she loses all self-will therefore she loses all responsibility therefore she is guiltless and it's at least a very mild manslaughter sentence and it's not murder and I just wanted to to reiterate that while there are cases of long-term victims who, who couldn't escape and suddenly snap, this was not one of those. It's quite clear from all the evidence, and I, I read everything that there was. If women are equal and have equal rights, we also have equal responsibilities of self-control. And in this case, she was the one with the knife. She was the one who then didn't help him but stabbed him again twice. It's clear that neither of them were saints, but treating women as automatically guiltless because they're innately so helpless is not a kind of feminism I can sign up to. And so, I mean, I had a lot of hesitation as to whether to write this, and I'm quite interested that a fair number of people are agreeing with me below the line, but obviously a great deal will not, and some people will always say, no, 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 you know, a woman who snaps, you know, it's because she must have been so badly abused emotionally and we can't, you know, see inside, but I can't, I can't go along with that this time, not having read about this particular case, so it's specifically about this case and the particular callousness of this case. And I suppose the point is, uh, Libby, the 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 trying to portray this particular case as being a you know um downtrodden woman the victim the victim essentially in all of this it actually does a disservice to those who are genuinely in that in that situation I think it does a disservice to all of us. I think we have to say, you know, there was a time in history when women were chattels, were victims, had no rights at all, really only a couple of centuries back. Um, but now we do. And therefore, we have to take on the responsibility. One of those responsibilities is if you think you are going to, you, you can't bear being near somebody, you do not pick a knife and go at them with it. You just don't. What's your take on this, Rachel? It just seems so sad, the whole case. And I again, I feel so torn about it. So I do agree with what Libby's saying to some extent. But then also, I think there is a, a genuine issue of coercive control and um, relationships where women feel emotionally trapped. And you can say, oh, don't pick up a knife, walk away. But actually, people feel that they can't do that. And the, the Sally Challen case that you mentioned, Libby, was a good example of that her murder conviction was quashed um after years of coercive controlling by um her husband and it just i don't know i feel very um i think you're right libby but also i just don't know really what happened in this relationship i suppose you have to d listen to what the, the judge said and he said he was sure that the victim was nothing like the person she claimed um but also they weren't they clearly neither of them were saints and clearly she had been through a lot i just felt yes, that I think there I was it, a, a suggestion a that they both went that, through a lot yeah, yeah. but there's mm. a danger I mean, I, of saying that, that this curse of control oh sort of snap out of it and actually i don't think that is true i interviewed um rosie duffield the Labour MP who'd been in a coercive controlling relationship and she described so powerfully how, you know, her friends would say to her, this is bad for you, you know, leave him. And she just somehow couldn't. And it was very hard to, rationally, it's hard to understand, but she felt she felt he loved her and she he felt she she felt she loved him and that she was trapped in that very deep level. But you still, you don't pick up 
the knife. You just don't. And I mean, this is not the kind yeah. of coercive control where the woman couldn't leave the house. This was a woman who went out, who had friends, you know, who went to the gym all the time, all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, obviously the lockdown made things very hard for them. But you just have to say, just because you are really upset and peaked and feel you've been badly done by, the thing you do not do is pick up the knife. No, and I, I agree. And I suppose I that, that's, there's, a, there's a danger in this sort of discussion about coercive control and um, those who who are genuinely victims in that case. It's still not all right to murder the other person. I could, but it is understandable, and I suppose it's mitigation that in the face of if all else fails and that was the only option and in the heat of the moment and after months or years of of trauma, that is an explanation. But we can't be in a situation where it becomes OK to kill someone else because of the situation you were in. I suppose that's that's the point, isn't it, Libby? No, it, the, of course not. The, the... But Libby, I'm interested, why do you think the Sally Challen case is different then? Because I've read a lot about both of them. And, mm. you know, the, the, I mean, the age at which Sally Challen first met this man when she was 15, you know, there was a lifelong history of that kind of dom dominance. You also have all the various evidence from different people at the trial about the Jackson case. Just a totally, totally different picture. Mm -hmm. But there is a very great danger of letting women off for all sorts of reasons out of guilt because the, the misogyny and persecution of women in the past, which I totally acknowledge, and some of it's still happening now in some quarters and, my goodness, in some parts of this country, in some communities. Because of that, there is this terrible temptation to say we must always be very soft on women, whatever they do. Do. And as a woman wanting the dignity of being a woman, I can't ever just take that. Well, it's a fascinating case. And as you were saying, Libby, the, the, there's, well, there's loads of comments underneath your, your columns today. And actually, lots of them saying that they, I mean, not everyone agrees as ever, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, lots of them saying, you know, thank you for that refreshing common sense attitude. Uh, as a feminist, I'm astonished that some feminists are berating the judge and join this case. Demand it, Penny Jackson, be free. Do they not read the same reports that I or Libby did? Uh, so, yeah. You, anyway, you can continue that conversation. Go online to uh, thetimes.co.uk. Can we talk about tiramisu now? I was going to, exactly <laughs> right. I was talking about tiramisu. Sure I was de I was, I was, that's why I was carefully <laughs> winding it up and slightly shifting the mood, Libby, uh, before we talked about the most important thing, which is the, the father of tiramisu has died at the age of 93. Um, he'll be presumably laid to rest in layers of... Uh, cream and um, chocolate. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yes, he, Ad, Ado Campiol, uh, the father of Tiramisu, has died at the age of 93. Uh, go on then, Libby, give us your views on Tiramisu. Are they going to be as controversial as everything else? Oh, well, I love it. I just love the way that it, he, it's very recently invented and it's now a traditional Italian. It even gets quoted in that, I think it's in Sleepless in Seattle, where the guy is scared of starting dating again and he says, oh, tiramisu, what's that? Do I have to do that to her? What is it? Um, but I, I also love the fact it's not the first time a traditional dish was actually invented a few years back because tartiflette, which people think is oh, traditional Swiss Savoir Alps, it was dreamed up in the 80s as a special way of selling more reblochon cheese and it was boosted by Le Syndicat Interprofessionnel du Reblochon. You know, so I love the idea that you can invent a new traditional dish and flog it to the world, and especially to the Brits, who are so gullible about these things. <laughs> and um, I, I, it's, it's wonderful. So God bless the tiramisu guy. Yeah, tiramisu, only, it was only invented, they only added to their menu in 1972. That's how, that's how recent it is. 
but also that we love it as Brits, that sort of cosmopolitan food fad. And it was in the age where, you know, I grew up with Angel Delight and Butterscotch Angel Delight was oh, the most sort of innovative yeah, thing that was about. Do you remember? Now you're talking. Yeah. But then suddenly tiramisu is the latest thing. And actually how, you know, we, we do rather love new things and we love food from all around the world. And, you know, avocados were the most bought items on Waitrose around the country, <laughs> the, the, uh, not just by millennials. And there is that sense that we don't, we won't really want to go back to trifle and mushy peas apart from as a kind of nostalgia comfort food. But and that actually but this, we but also, are It's, it's gloop. I mean, that's the great thing, is that tiramisu <laughs> is absolute gloop. And so is smashed avocado. It's because the British have such terrible teeth, isn't it? Libby Burris and Rachel Sylvester there. And, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next, I speak to Danny Alexander. 
since that since that time. So it's a, it's a long time. And have you managed to get into the blue zone this morning? Yes, after a, a fair bit of queuing in the security queue, but I'm but I'm here now. Yes, just inside the the conference uh, venue. So um, that's all. Or, or been successfully navigated. Very good, very good. Right, let's start at the beginning there for people who don't know. What is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank? What does it do? So the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is a multilateral development bank. So like the uh, World Bank or the IMF or the European Investment Bank, um, it's a, a, a group of countries that come together to set up this institution. In our case now, we have 104 member countries around the world. And the purpose is to invest in infrastructure projects that support the sustainable economic development of Asia. So, so our members have contributed in total $100 billion of capital to AIB. And then we use that money to finance projects, especially in low and middle income developing countries uh, in Asia, to support their economic development, to support their sustainability, to support their green transition. And so um, we've, we've committed that... Uh, at least 50% of our financing will be for climate financing by 2025. And that by 2030, we expect to commit at least $50 billion to climate-related climate projects in Asia. And obviously, uh, the needs in Asia are huge. Countries in Asia are going to be among the hardest hit by climate change if we don't deal with it. And um, multilateral institutions like ours are critical to mobilizing the finance that's necessary to actually... Uh, achieve the, the 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 outcomes that those countries need. So, just explain to me exactly the sort of thing you're investing in. Is there? Are you still investing in coal, gas, oil projects? Uh, we've never invested in coal, and 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 we won't we won't do so. Um, we invest in a lot of different energy projects, principally renewable energy, but also gas projects in uh, some of our developing uh, member countries, where that's uh, necessary and part of their uh, climate transition. Um, we've just uh, announced that we will be aligning all of our projects with the Paris Agreement by the middle of 2023. That's something that all of the international financial institutions have been working on together. And so we're all doing that together. And that means that even if a project isn't strictly related to climate, it has to show that it's uh, in line with the overall goals of the Paris Agreement. For gas, what that means is that we have to show that it's part of a a country's um, transition plan, um, uh, and that it that 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 it that it fits in with the with the with the other aspects of Paris alignment, and so um, that's our approach on those issues. I mean, obviously, you talk about the impact of uh, climate change on on Asia, but obviously, country you know, Bangladesh is not the problem uh, when it comes to climate change. It's China. What role does uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank have in Chinese policy? What's the role of the Chinese? government in in the bank so we don't have any role in chinese policy we're, we're an international institution not a not a chinese one uh, china is a major shareholder in aib and so they're obviously uh, part of the decision making process in the bank alongside all the other members you may remember that the uk joined the aib at the end of the period of the coalition government that i was part of um, and so we have members from all over Asia, most European countries, Canada's a, a member, we have members in Latin America and Africa. So they all decide the, politi- the, the policies uh, together. Um, and we, um, you know, we apply high environmental standards to all of our projects. And so when we're financing projects in China, just the same as in any other country, we apply the same 
kind of standards and and an approach as we would anywhere else. For AIB, uh, India is the largest uh, borrower from the bank at the moment. About a quarter of our financing is in India. And then we have a lot of projects in, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in Indonesia, in Turkey, in China, and in many other, many other parts of Asia. Obviously, it's a new institution, so we're still growing. And so we expect uh, the number of countries and, uh, that we invest in to grow, and of course, the amount of financing in total to grow as well. And what's the, what's the connection? Can countries who receive investment uh, from the bank, do they have to, as has been suggested by some critics, sort of declare loyalty to China? Are they able to be publicly critical of Beijing? Or is this actually Beijing using its economic um, weight, if you like, to extend its tentacles around the world? No, those are those are uh, those claims are not are not true. There is there's, there's no relationship between uh, AIB financing and bilateral relations with with with, with China. We um, we finance projects strictly according to you know the quality of the project. Uh, is it going to make a difference in terms of economic development? Is it going to make a difference in terms of of climate change? We apply the the same criteria on an on an objective basis. So any of our members can come to us and say we have a project. Uh, maybe a renewable energy project or a road development or a railway, uh, we'd like AIB to finance it. And then we apply the same kind of standards and approaches wh- wherever, that, wherever that project is, irrespective of the politics. You know, we're, a, we're a, a, an international institution. We have to be a, objective in these matters. I'm, now, I'm no longer a politician. I'm an international civil servant. And so, you know, we have to be politically neutral in everything that we do. But I suppose if you're making the decision to be green in your investments that's a that's a political decision so are there any other considerations that you take into account when you're making those decisions you know is human rights an issue uh for instance um there's it's all over the papers again today uh liz truss reported by the times to have said that uh, in a meeting that genocide was taking place against the uyghur muslims in the xinjiang province is that something that you take into is that something you agree with so we, we when we're financing projects we we try to make sure that they're environmentally sustainable we have safeguards for that uh, socially sustainable. So we have safeguards for, for example, of course, major infrastructure projects can often have a big impact on on, on local people. So um, if people have to be resettled, the standards by which that is done, the level of compensation that is paid, obviously workplace uh, safety, um, uh, issues like uh, forced labor, we have policies against those things which have to be applied in, in projects we finance. So the, the way institutions like the AIB or the World Bank work is that we have policies, uh, and those policies have to be followed in the projects that we're that we're financing, whatever they are in the world. So we don't take a a, a, a stance on on these political issues. These policies have been agreed by all of our members as something that is appropriate to ensure that when we finance a project, it is done to high standards, it's done to high quality, uh, and it's and it's done in line with international best practice. And so where projects are concerned, we follow those rules uh, absolutely. But I wouldn't get involved in. In, in commenting on internal political issues uh, in any um, of our member countries, uh, uh, I would simply make sure that in the projects we finance, we're following those rules correctly. I was just interested because you know, as you when you were a, a Liberal Democrat uh, cabinet minister, you know, you would have spoken up about issues on human rights and that sort of thing. And I, I was struck. I knowing that you were coming on today, I spoke to someone who who'd served in the cabinet with you. It sort of described. You know, since since you left government, since George Osborne left government, uh, China's rather fallen out of fashion in British politics. And the, the phrase was used to me: "Are you are you the sort of acceptable face of Chinese colonialism now?" 
Um, I, I wouldn't use that phrase about myself. I'd be very surprised if anyone else would use that phrase uh, about me. I mean, you know, when we when we in the UK decided to join the AIB, it was because um, we saw the proposal for a new multilateral institution as a positive one, because multilateral institutions follow international law, they follow international norms, they operate according to high standards. And we felt that it was appropriate for the UK to be part of that uh, in the way that we're part of many other multilateral institutions. So I know that's you know, we've, we've left the EU recently, but still the, um, the, the, the same basic idea still applies. And so the UK, I, I don't represent the UK in the bank. The UK is represented around the table by a, by a treasury official. I'm part of the management of the bank. But I would say that the UK plays a very significant and very constructive role in making sure that the AIB is, you know, living up to those, those, those standards and commitments exactly as you know, we hoped and expected when we decided to join. I mean, I suppose that the point is that in, the, in British politics, at least, there's been quite a shift against uh, China since you were in government. The AAIB was suggested by China. It was launched at a ceremony in China. It's, it's based in Beijing. And I just wonder whether you're entirely comfortable still with that um, uh, alliance with, with China, given the huge criticism in the UK, whether it's you know, the, the, the situation in Hong Kong, the Uyghur Muslims. You're, 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 you're clearly not concerned about that. I'm, I'm comfortable working for a multilateral institution because I believe, you know, as, as you remember when I was in politics, Matt, we talked from time to time, I'm an internationalist. I believe in... Um, you know, having institutions, whether, whether, whether it's the AIB, the World Bank, the IMF, we're here at the COP26, which is the United Nations Conference. The purpose of these kind of institutions is to create a framework of rules in which countries with different systems can work together to achieve common objectives. In the case of the AIB, the common objective is sustainable economic development in Asia. And, and that, that common objective is important, as we see today uh, here in Glasgow, because to tackle climate change, we will have to ensure there is significant change both in developed countries and in developing countries. We have to meet the needs of developing countries uh, very thoughtfully and, and, and carefully because they, they also have very substantial uh, development, uh, development needs. And so having institutions that can uh, implement those policies, that can contribute finance to help those countries develop is enormously important. I, I'm, I'm very proud to work for one such institution. There are many in the world. Um, uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's, you know, whatever the, whatever the disagreements, the bilateral disagreements between uh, member states, that's not a matter for me directly. But within an organization like the AIB, you do have a framework of rules and norms which allows that cooperation to, 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 to go forward. And, you know, I think the AIB has been quite effective in that way. And I think in relation to climate, which is what we're here to, to, to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the contribution that the AIB can make by investing in projects in developing countries in Asia, where the needs are huge, and also, by the way, where the impact on people will be the greatest of anywhere in the world, is, is, is really very important. We want to be a, a green institution. That's what we're building. That's what we're developing. And I think we can, you know, help to ensure that the, you know, the, the very, very important goals that uh, the UK has led here at COP26 can be achieved in practice by the way that we deploy our financing. And, and I'm, I think it's important that uh, these institutions are able to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, proud to be part of one such. 
It's Matt Trotty speaking to Danny Alexander, uh, live from the COP26 uh, summit in Glasgow. Just before we move on, we we'll talk a little bit about British politics. On, on the specific question of China, China's pledged to bring its emissions to a peak by 2030 and cut them to net zero by 2060. Given what you, you know about the Chinese economy and the progress in investing in, in greener technologies and that sort of thing, is it economically and sort of practically, uh, physically possible for that to be done sooner, or is the the, the sort of the makeup of the Chinese uh, economy is is, net, is twenty is it possible for China to reach uh, twenty fifty uh, reach reach net zero by twenty fifty? Is it is it a political decision or a practical one about it, it not being possible by uh, until twenty sixty? Do you think? I think for China, like for other um, other major economies around the world. The decision to move to net zero is one that is enormously consequential. It involves changing almost every aspect of how people live, of how the economy functions, of how energy uh, is generated. And, um, you know, to shift your emissions from an upward trajectory to a, to a, to a rapidly downward one and to change the way your economy works is a, is a massive challenge for any, any economy. And obviously in China, um, the scale of their uh, of their country is 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 even is even greater, um, but look, I mean, one of the one of the messages from this COP twenty six is that every country has to do more, and um, you, the thing that I've learned in China about the Chinese system is that when they make a commitment to do something, their system will 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 get into gear and will will deliver it. Um, so, uh, my sense is that there's a lot of serious effort underway to 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 to, to do that, but in the context of of, of, of COP26, obviously, um, you know, the world is coming together to try and keep 1.5 alive, as, as Boris Johnson said, and that will necessitate every country doing its utmost to achieve those goals. Um, I think for, uh, for developing countries in Asia and countries that still have, uh, you know, a lot of economic growth ahead of them, that challenge is even greater. And that's why, um, especially for lower income countries, the world has to rally around, especially the, the developed world, and contribute the finance that is necessary to help those countries achieve their objectives, because they will not be able to do it, do it by themselves. And they have, I think, you know, a, a right to to expect that this transition should be made justly, and that those who have who have benefited, as we have in the Western world over many decades, from uh, economic growth driven by pollution, among many other things, will contribute to helping others to to solve those problems. Daniel, let me bring you back to uh, to, to Britain now. Uh, British poli- a little bit of British politics. As I mentioned at the beginning, you were in the Treasury for um, all all but a few weeks as uh, Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, George Osborne's deputy, essentially during those coalition years, um, is the arch- you know, one of the co-architects of of austerity and the, e- the economic uh, plan back then. These days, austerity is a bit of a dirty word in Britain. Boris Johnson and uh, Rishi Sunak are much keener on spending uh, money these days. Um, do you uh, do you have any regrets about that? That actually, maybe if you'd have taken the Boris Johnson Rishi Sunak approach to the national finances, you might even still be an MP. You might even still be in government. Well, look, um, I'm not going to uh, comment on the current policies of the of the current government for the for the reasons I was saying earlier. Um, uh, I'm, I'm no longer involved in in British politics. It's not for me to to to, to get into that. But I think. As I reflect back on my own time in government, I would say that, um, you know, the decisions we made were uh, the right ones for the time. I'm sure each government has to face the specific circumstances of its time and work out what are the right decisions. Um, of course, 
um, you know, as, as a coalition government, we had to um, accept some give and take between the two parties. So there were some things that as Liberal Democrats, we would prefer not to have done and, and vice versa. But um, I think at that time it was it was it was necessary um, as to uh, the current government. Well, history will have to judge them in due course. Um, let me ask you about when, before you became Chief Secretary of the Treasury, you were very briefly the Scottish Secretary. Um, <laughs> I was. I was the youngest, shortest serving and arguably uh, most successful Scottish <laughs> Secretary in history. We weren't there long enough for anything to go wrong. I mean, things could yet go wrong. Uh, se- 17 days, yes. Things could yet go days. wrong in Scotland, of course. The, um, all the polls suggest uh, support for um, Scottish independence is, is higher than it's been for, for some time. How concerned are you that the next time you make it back from Beijing to, to Scotland, it might not be still part of the UK? Um, look, I, I'm not going to get into this issue in, in detail because I'm not part of Scottish politics uh, anymore. I took an active part in, in the referendum in 2014 as one of the leaders of the UK government, and my views are, uh, are well known. I suspect that um, every government around the world for the next few years... Uh, we'll have to focus on how to uh, restore economic growth in the after COVID, how to continue to, to, to improve the health of populations under these circumstances, and how to tackle climate change. And that seems like a, a big enough agenda to keep anybody busy for the next few years. Uh, just finally, then away from uh, away from politics, so I, can, I can see that you're not going to get too involved in that. Um, has Nick Clegg invited you to join the metaverse yet? <laughs> no, he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> of, all, um, of all the things which have happened since you left government, is there anything weirder than those videos of Nick Clegg uh, doing acting with Mark Zuckerberg, telling us all that we're going to play cards with robots in the metaverse? I haven't watched the videos, so... Um, <laughs> well, there's a treat I, I, for I, you. I, so I'll, I'll, I'll look them up after this interview and let you know. <laughs> Uh, Danny Alexander, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really good to speak to you. Um, uh, and, uh, just, uh, just finally, Danny, what is the sort of atmosphere like though in Glasgow? Does it feel like a summit which is going to achieve something? I mean, I think it's it's a pretty challenging um, environment because there are so many um, different things that have to be included. But I think there's what what I get is a, is a real sense of ambition, a real sense of people coming here because they want to take the right steps to uh, minimise the extent that we can. The amount of climate change and the impact it has on people. Um, how that will play out, I don't know, but I think there's an awful lot of goodwill towards this process, and that's a very important way to start. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.